I'll get it, Rosa. Who are we to them? Shh. Who's there? Flowers from Kay Den. Lindsay, Tommy, supper's ready now. Who else is in the house? No one. No one. Shut up. Get on the floor. I said to you, like the flowers, baby. Huh? What do you think the money, man. Don't huh? the money in. Come on, where's the jewels, huh? Fast cars, flashy clothes, big money, heavy players, and the hot Miami scene. These were the main ingredients that made Miami Vice one of the most innovative shows of the 1980s. Journey with Tim and Mark as we take a peek into the drama series with an MTV feel on the Vice of Miami podcast. Welcome back, Vice fans, to the Vice of Miami podcast for show number 20. Can't believe we made it this far. We hope you enjoyed the last episode of Vice of Miami covering Made for Each Other. Sit back, relax, grab a beverage, and join Mark and Tim as we go over episode 19 of Miami Vice, The Home Invader. This episode was written by Chuck Adamson, directed by Abel Ferrara, and the original air date was March 15th, 1985. The summary for this episode is that the squad is assigned to assist the robbery division with a string of brutal home invasions. Castillo is concerned that the officer in charge, Lieutenant John Malone, who was Crockett's mentor, is mishandling the investigation and the two clash, leaving Crockett torn between loyalty and a resolved case. That music brings us to the guest stars and co-stars of this episode, but as we've done before, we're going to cover a single star in this episode. This highlighted star is Sandra Santiago as Metro Dade Detective Gina Calabrese. Tim, you want to start off? Sure can, Mark. Sandra Santiago, born April 13, 1957 in Bronx, New York, is an American actress born of Cuban and Puerto Rican parentage. Her most famous role was that of Metro Dade detective Gina Calabrese. Santiago also played a dual role of Gina Calabrese and her mother, Elena Obregon, in the episode Heroes of the Revolution. Sandra's family moved to Homestead, Florida when she was 13. Later on, she attended the University of Miami, majoring in psychology. She then became interested in acting while in college, and after graduation, she attended Southern Methodist University, earning a master's in theater and arts. She began acting in a Broadway production of A View from the Bridge and had other roles in both on- and off-Broadway plays. She made her movie debut in 1982's The End of August, then appeared as Carmen in 1984's breakdancing movie Beat Street. She also appeared in a few TV shows and made-for-TV movies in the 90s, guesting on Dick Wolf's Law & Order series, then landed in a recurring role as mob boss Carmen Santos on the CBS soap Guiding Light. 
During this time, she also played in HBO mob series The Sopranos as Tony Soprano's neighbor, Jeannie Cusimano, and her twin Joan. Santiago was cast as Detective Gina Calabrese in the police drama Miami Vice. Originally, Santiago's character was a lure for prostitution bust, but as the series developed, Gina became more of a regular police detective, getting involved in undercover operations. Santiago also displayed her singing talent in the third season finale, Heroes of the Revolution, singing two songs live on stage, but unlike Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas, she never released any albums of her work. Santiago reprised her Gina role on an episode of the daytime soap, Days of Our Lives, when the storyline was based in Miami, and her and co-star Michael Talbot appeared as their respective roles of Gina and Switek in an episode of NBC's MTV Imitator Friday Night Videos. Santiago also played a short role on the soap One Life to Live after leaving Guiding Light, returning to One Life in June 2009 in a recurring role, her last appearance being in September 2010. She appeared in an episode of the 2011 series Person of Interest, the TV movie Meddling Mom, gang-related Gotham, and her most recent TV appearance in Madam Secretary. In movies, she also had a small role in the 1993 Brian De Palma movie, Carlito's Way, and her most recent movie appearance, 2013's The House That Jack Built. Santiago met musician Roger Sequerto in 1994 when they performed in the Broadway play Chronicle of a Death Foretold. They married five years later and have no children. And since we highlighted Gina, we'll quickly list the following guest stars and co-stars. We have Jack Kehoe as Metro Day Lieutenant John Malone, Isai Morales as Burglar Home Invader Valet Pete Romano, David Patrick Kelly as Home Invader and Burglar Jerry, Brent Jennings as Metro Dade Sergeant Hugh Herity, Paul Calderon as Home Invader and Burglar Nicky, Don Sonny Cox as Metro Dade Detective Ebersol, Frank Pesci as Benny the Jeweler, and Sylvia Miles as Muriel Goldman, the Don't Rape Me Lady. And we have a few co-stars also, Mark. Kay Ingram as Mrs. Taylor, one of the home invasion victims. Mylis Cooneyholm as Shasha, the hooker bimbo. Nancy Vlynn as Lana, the hooker bimbo. Okay, let's cover the music playing in this episode. First up, we have Destination Unknown by Sly and Robbie. That's when Castillo and Crockett are in the bar and when Romano shoots uh, the Miami cop in a second home invasion. Second, we have The Glamorous Life by Sheila E. That's when the scene was in the hair salon. And some Jan Hammer music showing up in this episode was Clues, and that's when Crockett was driving through the night and also when the cops were reviewing the daily life questionnaires and Night Talk, where Crockett, Castile, and Malone are discussing Malone's retirement. We're now going to move on to our Goofs Fun Facts and Locations. And we have a funny quote here, and I love this one. And it was from Castile to Crockett. Detective, I've seen more information on a dog bite report. And that's when he's referring to the Robbery Division's home invasion pamphlet. Next up, we have a location, the Ball Harbor Shops at 9700 Collins Avenue in Ball Harbor, which is just north of Miami. That's where the Hair Emporium was. 
The only salon there now in this little strip mall area is called Red Market Saloon, along with other boutique shops. And in his next goof, I definitely caught this one because I'm like, this is not sunny. In a slow motion shot of Crockett driving as he scopes out the city at night, it is clearly a stand-in or in the case, a sit-in driving the car. And a fun fact, Philip Michael Thomas, a.k.a. Tubbs, does not appear at all in this episode. His absence is explained by him going to New York for a few days off with Valerie Gordon. Thomas, in fact, was injured doing a stunt in the previous episode made for each other. And this would be the only episode he would miss during the entire series run. And we have another location here, JJ's Diner, which is now Irish Times, 5850 Sunset Drive, South Miami. And that is where Crockett Castillo Malone discuss Malone's retirement and Zito and Switek are having lunch with Mrs. Goldman. And this last one is kind of a continuity thing. Nancy Valens' appearance here as Lana the hooker bimbo could be considered an example of continuity, albeit unintentional. In this episode, she plays the prostitute that one of the home invaders beats up. She previously played a high-priced call girl at a party in the episode Rite of Passage who asked Crockett for a light. However, Crockett in this episode doesn't appear to recognize her. This could be because of the amount of time that has passed and the amount of people Crockett has probably busted in his cases. Now let's go over the trivia portion. In the last episode covering Made for Each Other, we asked, after their cover is blown at Bonzo Berry's, in which Zito did not think they busted the chick in a store for solicitation, but Switek ended up being right. Stan says he's going to tell Castillo that he's teamed up with what? An albatross. Take a listen. And now for this week's trivia question is an easy one. What did retiring detective John Malone give to Crockett as a gift? And I believe he called it a graduation gift. You can post your answers on this episode's Facebook post, or you can email us at viceofmiamishow at gmail.com. We will air some of the answers. This is for fun. No prizes. Before we get started with the discussion, uh, we just want to thank you all for being with us on this journey so far, and we are coming to a close pretty soon in the next few episodes of the first season of Miami Vice. We are reaching out to you, the listeners, to find out what were some of the things you liked in our first season podcast. Do you want more of something or less of something, and what different would you like us to include how we can make things better? Because as you know... We are evolving as we are learning as we go on. So we would appreciate any comment, and you could do either post it on Facebook or you can email us at viceofmiamishow at gmail.com. Yeah, Tim and I appreciate everybody listening, obviously, as we always say that we're doing this as fun. We don't get paid. 
And if you like something, let us know. If you don't like something, let us know as well. Hopefully we can make it better for you. Tim, you want to start the discussion on this one? Sure can. In the opening scene, we have a young family being brutalized by home invaders. I mean, it was a really quick opening scene, no more than three minutes long, uh, where these guys are coming in. In this this particular home invasion, they had the stocking mass on. You know, we got to notice, why do robbers only use pantyhose when you could still see their faces? They look at it as if their noses are smashed down. But, you know, I just came to the conclusion that maybe they figure that the victims go into that, you know, you have that fight, flight, or freeze thing, and they go into that freeze their brain locks up and then you're just, you know, they, they figure the fear, the emotions will prevent the victim from picking out those fine details that is underneath that pantyhose. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? You think that's fair enough uh, assessment there? Yeah, probably. Like you said, people are getting stressed enough as it is. So again, this was a quick episode, uh, not a quick episode, a quick scene, the home invasion. And then right away, we moved along to um, OCB to a disheveled, obviously a little bit worse for the wear. Crockett comes stumbling in. I wouldn't say he's drunk, but there everyone's called in for a very early morning meeting. I think uh, they said it was two, two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yep. And this was just hours after a Taylor invasion. Switek says something about what is it? A long night, something like that. Long so night, anyway, sunny. Yeah, exactly. So Castillo walks in and informs the vice crew that the deputy chief has reassigned all available personnel uh, to put a stop to the home invasions before more more citizens are attacked with robbery. Now, I don't know if he meant just vice, all detectives, vice or all detectives, period. Yeah, I I was clear on that, but it seemed like it from the app, from obviously as we go along, it just seems like it was vice. Yeah, just vice. all available Vice cops were reassigned. And Gina and Trudy are already working on a case, uh, and they're going to join the rest of OCB later. Deputy Chief wants all available detectives on the home invaders investigation immediately. As of tomorrow, the four of us will be working robbery, and I want you two to be up to date. As soon as you're done with the Hernandez case, you're coming aboard. What's this? Notes on a home they just hit in Palm Island. What's the M.O.? It varies, but the homes have been occupied, been brutalizing the families. Last night, they put a woman in the hospital. Electrical burns. Sonny tells Castillo that he knows the head of robbery, Lieutenant John Malone, who was his mentor. We switch over now. The OCB are arrives at the robbery division and Crockett is reunited with Ebersol and Lieutenant John Malone, who again, he spoke highly of somebody that took him under his wings when, when Sonny was a new uh, detective. Then they have a meeting that gets underway where it's a briefing. Basically uh, Malone presents and he says, there's been six home invasions in eight weeks, totaling over 2 million in stolen property along with five injured civilians. Then Sergeant Harity provides a pamphlet detailing all the all that robbery has on home invasions, which were similar ones that were reported in Chicago, New York. You know, there was a thought that maybe this crew just was bouncing from big city to big city. And the scores varied from jewelry to cash to coins. Descriptions include the use of hockey masks and stockings to cover their faces, but nothing else. And they also had uh, automatic weapons, shotguns, things like that. 
they further told them that commercial vehicles were being stolen and used on delivery routes as a cover, though none have been recovered or even spotted. Castillo starts picking the pamphlet apart. This is where it gets fun. Yes, it does. And he was relentless about this. And he noticed very various holes in what they were missing is key descriptors or information that should go in a basic uh, police report. And then it just becomes obvious to him that robbery is not really handling the case as effectively as they could be. But this is where, you know, Sonny starts barking in Castillo's ear, you know, you know, why are you going down so hard on him? You know, he, right. he was he visibly like- upset because this was a mentor. Right, exactly. He didn't like it that uh, Castillo was kind of, you know, cut him off at the knees, but it was also blutal, uh, brutally blunt and to the fact. In his deadpan way. In his deadpan way. So you think these are out-of-towners? Could go either way. Have you been calling your local burglars when the scores are reported? But what? Well, if they're home in bed, then uh, they couldn't have robbed the house. Usually, Martin... We don't tuck in our local suspects. Seems to me that's the kind of information that a robbery unit should have. There's next to nothing in this, not even an MO sheet. It's my understanding the method is everything to these home invaders. They work on a clock. Yet there's uh, not a word in this pamphlet as to how long they're in the house. Where's he speaking next week? And now we move along uh, outside of a house. A town car pulls up. Somebody inside starts taking pictures of the house, the phone box, electrical box, street signs, people coming and going, the security system, etc. And it's obvious that uh, they're planning the next heist here in which, you know, it shows that the investigations are very well planned. They're not leaving any stone unturned to get to their booty. We fast forward to their lair, I guess we could call it, a little warehouse maybe or something. Yes. And we see, yep, you need to say something. Yeah, that's exactly what I call it. Their lair, their 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 hideout, where their, their home fort. base. If there were kids, we could call it the fort. Let's go to the fort. The fort. So yeah. So anyway, we or see it's joint. loaded. So anyway, we see it's loaded with disguises and weapons, and I don't. It looks like maybe in the background they've got a bunch of boxes or something like that. So maybe there's a warehouse. So after considering all the risk involved in this particular house, they decide not to hit the home that they've just scouted out. Uh, Nikki says that there are plenty of other scores that won't draw as much heat, and Jerry agrees. But Pete Romano, he's disappointed, and you can tell he's getting really pissed off here. He's thinking the team has gotten soft and missing out on $200,000 in good. Security patrols, it doesn't look as good as I was hoping. Yeah, but for this one, maybe we take a little extra draw. There's maybe 200 large in there. Our end. Can we prowl it? I counted three different alarms going off the pole. Because you got to figure, people like this, they got to have panic buttons under their pillows. Come on, there's got to be a way. We put too much time in this already. We're going like, uh, heavy. And ba-boom, and knock him down, and we'll lamb in three minutes' time. Two hundred grand, man. Forget it. We got no way to monitor their radio. So what about the patrols? We got a ram car. And we can't prowl it with all the juice going in the house. We got to pass it. I agree. You know, there's other good scores out there. We won't draw near the heat. Then we have Crockett and Castillo that are teamed up because, uh, Tubbs took a leave of absence to spend time with Valerie Gordon in New York. Interesting on that. 
was he going to visit her when she was in jail? Because that's where we were last left in that episode of Rites of Passage. Right. Or uh, maybe she, did she get a reprieve and released or her home yeah. confinement or something? Yep. Uh, so Definitely, I, I'm guessing, a booty call. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think she's in jail. E- either either at her apartment or a conjugal visit in prison. There you go. So anyway, Crockett and Castillo, they go visit the Taylor home, and that was the, the opening scene. That was their house that was invaded. And she starts describing what's happening, what happened. She she was worried about her son's arm, I believe, and said, I don't know if he'll be able to use his arm again. Uh, I mean, she was really upset. Castillo assures Mrs. Taylor that they would do everything they can to catch these men. And then he leaves her with a questionnaire detail, and it's something detailing their daily activities. And to me, this was a very crucial piece of paperwork that the robbery division dismissed as important to solving these crimes. And he asked her to fill it out. We'll come and pick it back up later. Then you have the montage showing Crockett going out and checking areas. And I think leaning on informants while Castile is just combing through the paperwork and all the, anything that they got from the robbery division, trying to make that connection. What's the common denominator, how these guys getting to where they're getting. Then they go to see Benny. And to me, I believe he's at a jewelry store, but I think Benny was a fence. Uh, Oh, absolutely. And they figure knowing that some of that stolen merchandise that these guys had were, he was fencing it for them, but he refuses to talk. He, and Crockett's the one that knew him. Castillo, I'm Lieutenant Castillo. I don't care if you're chief, get out of here. So basically that, that didn't lead anywhere for them. They end up at a bar where they meet Gene and Trudy, uh, and they want and Castillo wants them to let him know if there's any prostitutes that report any Johns beating them up, because this is something that was a an MO that the Chicago police reported during their home invasions. Later that night, the invaders strike again, hitting an elderly couple. And during that hit, a patrolman rolls up on a getaway power car where Pete Romano was sitting, and he just pull out a silencer and and just he he capped them. Capped them. Capped them one. Capped them good. He sure did. So, so anyway, the elderly man who's 75 years old, he was shot twice during the hit, and he's in the hospital. Uh, Castillo asks Malone why he didn't seal off the area after the hit, and you could see the little bit of grief in Malone's eyes, you know, kind of, oh, damn it, I kind of knew I should have done that type of thing. But anyway, Malone's incensed as well that Castillo's questioning his decisions uh, pretty much from the get-go here. His justif- uh, justification, rather, was that they were long gone, obviously, by the time police even got on the scene. Uh, Malone's stance is that the way you catch guys like this is through informants and wiretaps. Uh, Crockett, he's surprised that his former mentor has changed. So he's kind of finding himself bouncing back and forth, defending each lieutenant to each other. Uh, he shares Castillo's concerns that the investigation is threatened by Malone's shoddiness. Uh, but he also stands up for Malone out of loyalty because I'm I'm guessing that you know Crockett's learned some things through him, but you yeah, can tell he, he's the mentor. Yes, exactly. But you could tell he's getting old, getting kind of like Men in Black, the old guy in the beginning there. Yes, and and you could Sonny looked up to him, and now he's seeing him. You know, there's a little bit of tarnish on that badge, and I wouldn't even say tarnish, maybe a little bit of rust on that badge. For whatever oh, reason. Rust and not tarnish. Yeah, rust, you can't take that off. He's getting tired and, you know, it, it's time. It's showing. Crockett and Castillo then go to some seedy apartment building where they meet with Gene and Trudy, who have found a prostitute that was 
beaten up by someone recently. You know, she was really being belligerent towards Sonny as he asked her to go into detail about the John who beat her up. At the end of this back and forth between Sonny and the, and the hooker, her and another hooker friend were brought to OCB to look at some mug shots to see if they could identify who it was that uh, beat her up and maybe they get some uh, additional leads on this case. And then we have Castillo, Malone, Sergeant Hardy, and, and Crockett reviewing the crime reports and the questionnaires that were collected from the Miami hits. They confirm based on MO that the same Chicago invaders are now in Miami. And after reviewing these questionnaires, they all, they determine a common thread. All the women had their hair done at Hair Emporium. And I love this part because it was Castillo. Who was this? What did they do this? Where did they get their hair done? Where did they go right. next? And this was- I think at the beginning they were leaning towards landscapers because they, they were, I think, landscaping trucks were in like two of the heists or some yes. oddball thing like that or were who who was a landscaper. So he was going through every every spoke of the wheel. To me, this was the best scene because Castile just walked them through a simple link analysis, which is basic police work that was not completed by the robbery division. And once again- And that was at you know, the behest pretty much of, well, I wouldn't say at the behest, but- led by Malone, who was getting that rust on his band. Right, but it, it, it was just another way Castillo was leaning on. And this was just simple police work, but simple police work, yeah. without saying it, he was implying that this, this stuff should have been done. I thought you did better work in your own office. I came back to cross-check these. I noticed in his first knock, uh, Christensen. They used handcuffs. Did you ever do any good trying to run them down? Japanese manufacturer sold to a huge wholesaler in Chicago. Not enough time to chase down all the retailers and mail it again. Here's a report I asked from Chicago. According to the evidence recovered section, handcuffs were used on all the victims. Apparently the same brand. It's handcuffs or tape in every score in Miami. Commercial vehicles stolen in every case. Victims tortured. Handcuffed and taped. First words. Who's in the house? So moving forward, Gina goes to have her hair done under the guise of a rich woman. And she's scoping out the place, looking at all the hairdressers and the clients and all that. And when she gets done, she's going to get her car from the valet. And she's got a funny feeling about the valet parking attendant, who was a Romano, based on her uh, conversation with him. She really scoped out pretty much everybody, but kind of picked out this guy. And you could tell as she's pulling away, he's writing down in a little book or something, I'm guessing, um, her license plate, just to get a little bit more information. So back at OCB... Um, Zito and Switek have the bimbos going over the mug shots in a binder. And it seems as if Zito and Switek are growing tired of these broads ditziness when she can't find him in a mug shot. She's like, I know this guy. I know this he guy. He owes me this money, this and yep. that. And I think she, at some point she was just screwing around with them and oh, probably just, adding them, just like them she's along. doing with Sonny. I know that guy too. He had a neat tattoo. It's stretched out. <laughs> Yeah, I know that guy. I know that guy. 
I know that guy. And that guy. And that guy. This is so boring. Look, Lana. The purpose of this exercise is for you to find the one guy who beat you up most recently. Okay? So please take another look. This guy! That's the guy? Owes me 20 bucks. Eddie O'Donnell. Make a note of that, Shasha. What's the matter with you? I think we're just playing here or something. So after Gina returns, she and Trudy take these professional workers, we'll call them now, uh, out to the parking lot of the hair salon to verify that Romano was the one that beat her up. So uh, so surveillance can be set up. She IDs him, and they go ahead and set up the surveillance. Romano is observed making a copy of the keys to a blue Corvette and gathering information about it. Um, while the driver, Muriel Goldman, she's in the salon getting her hair done. When she leaves, Crockett and Castillo pull her over to warn her of a possible home invasion. And this is where she's like, don't rob me, don't rape me. You're not going to rape me, are you? I- Police officers, please step out of the car. Please, somebody help me. My ex-husband is having me murdered. Easy, easy, lady. Relax. We're detectives. We have reason to believe that you may be the victim of a robbery tonight. We need your help. A robbery? Take everything, but please, whatever you do, don't rape me. Lady, please. Step out of the car. We have to ask you some questions. What's your name? My name? How do you know I'm going to be robbed if you don't even know my name? Your name, lady, your name. Mrs. Abraham Goldman. It was kind of funny. Yeah, it was funny. And then later that night, Crockett and Castillo just set up camp at Mrs. Goldman's house. And it just keeps going back and forth between them sitting there waiting for the home invaders to come there. Did you notice Crockett was on the one couch? He had his guns all set, gun in one hand, and he got his ankle gun holstered. And then Castillo's just sitting there chilling out, reading a book. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. (laughs) Crockett was ready to go and... Marty's, he's just playing that. He was in a moment of zen. Yes, he was in no, Yeah, remember his house has kind of got that Japanese uh, mm-hmm. motif that. All he needed was a, a cup of tea and some incense burning. And he was ready to go. It was then, you know, the, it just keeps slipping back and forth between them sitting wedding and the invaders heading out on their hit, but they managed to shake the police after they changed cars. And I believe they also had another one of them commercial vans. Crockett starts becoming concerned that the invaders haven't come yet. And that's when when he had a discussion with Castillo. Marty said maybe they saw something they didn't like. So they they took off. Then they call OCB and Crockett wants to speak to Muriel, who's there. And she tells him, you know, know, he asks about the, the Corvette. And she said, that's not my car. That's my daughter's car. I wouldn't drive something like that. That basically the information that he got was probably the registration when Romano was thumbing through the car was for her daughter's house. So now they realize that they're they're at the wrong house waiting for Mm -hmm. these guys. They should have been here by now. Unless they already came here and saw something they didn't like. Put Mrs. Goldman on the phone. Mrs. Goldman, this is Detective Crockett. What lights do you normally leave on at night? Why? 
Just answer the question. The living room, the bathroom generally, the bedroom naturally, I like to watch. Where do you normally park your car? What car? Your Corvette. You mean my daughter's car? I wouldn't own a car that color. Where does your daughter live? Where she shouldn't, in that barn of a house I've been trying to talk her into moving. Lady, the address, the address. 18 Bow Drive. And this is where I thought, hey, you know what? Castillo being as suave as he is on doing things right, he makes blunders too. This is something you should have gotten right. Yeah, Just because somebody's driving a car doesn't mean it's theirs. Yeah, is this your car type of thing? That's mm-hmm. what they should they, have asked. Why didn't they run the plates? Comes back to somebody who's 30 years old versus, what, 70-year-old? Figure that one out. Yeah. They never thought to ask if it was her car. Yep. So Crockett and Castillo, they speed over to the daughter's house and they arrive just as the invasion is in progress. They sneak up to the getaway driver and Castillo incapacitates the driver. With his sleeper and hold. The sleeper hold. And they're sneaking up to the house and I guess they're kind of on the patio by a pool, I think. And Crockett's asking, should we wait for backup or should we go in? And Castillo's like, yeah, we just, it's go time. So he throws a table, I think it was a table or a chair or whatever, throws it through the glass door, and Crockett and Castillo storm in, uh, pretty much shooting down all the invaders. And Case closed. Case closed. Uh, so later, um, I'm guessing it's the next day here, they take Mrs. Goldman to lunch the next day. Uh, Malone stops by to give Crockett a graduation present and tells him that he's retired from the force. Uh, deciding that one sloppy case was pretty much more than he wanted on his record. And I guess he kind of knew it was time, you know, getting old there. Um, Castillo found out when the deputy chief called him asking his opinion about a suitable candidate to replace Malone. And Castillo pretty much said he couldn't think of anyone with a comparable track record. Uh, Crockett, obviously, he's stunned by his former mentor's retirement as Castillo and Malone joined Muriel for lunch. Okay, let's briefly go over the ratings. IMDB gives this a 8.2. Wow. A great reprieve from Made for Each Other. Tim, I give this a big thumbs up. Another shot at Vice working with another department within Miami PD. And I like how Castillo was busting, pretty much busting nuts on the shoddy detective work within the robbery division. And the reporting system they have there and what they get but he seems to hone in and get them pretty much on point during the investigation and how it made Malone think that pretty much his time is up. Uh, when I first saw this, I thought Malone maybe would be the accomplice to the invaders, just the way he looks disheveled. Yes. Um, but maybe that was just the way he was made up to look that he's run ragged in his career. Um, I also thought Castillo filled in well for the ailing tubs. Tim, your thoughts? Mark, I also give this a big thumbs up. This is an an example of good police work, especially in the part of Lieutenant Castillo in his relentless pursuit of the truth. You know, early on, he recognized that the robbery division was half-step in the case, in part because of John Malone's seeming disinterest in doing things by the book, and then thereby missing critical steps along the way that led to the sparse police reports that Castillo was, uh, you know, chirping about. You know, I really enjoyed watching Marty actually doing routine street work. Just a well-done episode all the way around. We have come to the part of the show where we hope to inspire or enlighten. We have officially named this Snurds Chalkboard of Wisdom. 
In both the world of Miami Vice and our current world at large, we encounter many challenges we work to overcome. In the interest of creating a family-friendly atmosphere through the show and on our social media, we would like to offer some parting thoughts. A simple quote, phrase, or words of encouragement, or a funny quip to you, our listeners. Because without you, our friends, we'd just be talking to ourselves. And we say friends because that's what we consider all of you who follow our show and social media. This show's words of wisdom come from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. And with that, we'd like to bring this episode of Vice of Miami podcast to a close. Tim and I appreciate each and every one of you listening, especially the following people who have liked, commented, or shared our posts. On Facebook, we have Ruth Clark, Mohammed Zahir Dada, Dirk Langer, Elaine Bell, Aurora Montiero, Dottie Hearing, Mario Kutin, and Krzysztof Podluski. On Instagram, we have Martin Kissy, GTA.Maple, The Vice Effect, Pasculolinum.Rodons, Cali Racer 100, SW Anson 66, Illinois Home Inspector, Filippone Furioso, Stefano Calzoni, Maria Stefanian. We hope you enjoy what we have to offer on our shows. Please spread the word about us and comment and rate us on your podcast platforms. We'll see you next time for Vice of Miami show number 21, covering episode 20 of Miami Vice, Nobody Lives Forever. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Vice of Miami Podcast or email us at viceofmiamishow at gmail.com. Please rate us and comment on the episodes and spread the word about the show. On YouTube, press the like button and hit the subscribe bell.